This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. We have an announcement this week. I wanted to let you know that the Dear Prudence podcast will now be released twice a week. That's right. That's two different episodes of Dear Prudence every week. The first episode will still come out at the same time on Tuesdays, and the second mini episode will now be released on Friday mornings. See you on Friday. Now on to today's show. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is no one. It is a rare, rare Danny-only episode. I I think we may have done this once before. I don't think we've done it twice before. This may very well be the second time I'm all by myself. And um, I have no one else to help me out if I stall or give the wrong answer. So this is it. This is me against the music. Um, I'm so excited. Danny, would you like to read our first letter? I sure would. The first subject is not coming out alone. Dear Prudence, I'm androgynous and identify as non-binary. I wear a lot of men's clothes, I'm assigned female at birth, and have very short hair, but mostly still get addressed as a woman. Until the summer, I was only out to my fiancé and to my identical twin, who is also genderqueer. A few months ago, I added my pronouns, she and they, to my social media accounts, but I still don't know how to bring this up with my parents or future in-laws. Most of them aren't on social media, but I'm very close with all of them, and they are all liberal and will probably be accepting. The problem is that coming out will likely invite intrusive questions about my twin's identity, and my twin is not ready to be out yet. My biggest concern is my mother. She doesn't have a great track record of holding herself back from asking sensitive questions or leaving my twin alone when I ask her to. My twin will likely view any questions from our mom as a hostile interrogation and still resents her for comments that she's made about their gender presentation over the years. How can I balance their need for privacy with my desire to talk openly about my identity? I feel like a lifetime's experience of being a trans person who has read a lot of Sweet Valley High books, like really, really prepared me for this moment, which is not to compare uh, either you or your twin to the Wakefield family. Um, But uh, the idea that if I give out personal information about myself, obviously other people are going to start asking about my twin as if we are the exact same person um, is is deeply familiar and frustrating, I would imagine, if, if only because it would feel not only intrusive towards your twin's privacy, but also a little bit like, I'm actually trying to talk to you about me right now, not my twin, and I'd rather you didn't use this as an opportunity to either make assumptions or try to find out information from me about somebody else. So I think to that end, talking to your mom sounds like it's going to be a little bit different from talking to the rest of your relatives. Like you have general hope that they will all respond fairly well and that even if they do ask one or two questions of like, hey, what does this mean about your twin? Um, that they will respond well to your saying, this is actually just about me. Uh, I, 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 there's there's nothing for me to tell you about anyone else. I'm just telling you about myself. So, so the issue is really, I think, um, your mom. And I think 
you know, if there is a history of I ask her to leave my twin alone and she doesn't, I, I think it's probably reasonable to assume that this time around when you come out, your mom will at some point try to ask your twin something. And there's only so much you can do to control for that. So I, I would say give your twin a heads up. Certainly, like I'm going to be coming out to mom this weekend. Um, I'm not going to answer any questions that she might ask about you. But given her track record, you know, you might get a weird call or a text from her. And I just wanted to give you a heads up. If there's anything else I can do to help you sort of prepare for it, let me know. And I'm really sorry. And if if she does do this, just know it's not coming from me. Um, I'm not encouraging her to go do that. I will not be giving her any information about you. Um, but beyond that, if you're worried, what if my twin and my mom get into a fight? Maybe they need to get into a fight because it sounds like your twin has some fairly understandable resentments about the way that your mom has pried in the past. Um, and if the two of them need to duke it out, then they need to duke it out a little bit. So I, I think for you, the best way forward is just going to be, you know, telling your mom, these are the pronouns that I use. I, I'm coming out. Um, I understand myself as non-binary. Here's a little bit about what that means for me. Um, and, and to think, I think, in advance of both, like, if you can give her a couple of short sentences about, here's what that process looked like. Here's when I started thinking about it. Here's what I find really meaningful or or rewarding about it. And then if you have, you know, more questions, I'd be happy to answer them, assuming, by the way, that you would be happy to answer some basic questions and also to think about in advance, what are questions I don't want to answer? Not only questions about my twin, but questions about me. Um, and having a sense ahead of time, here are questions that I think are reasonable and I'm happy to answer or at least willing to answer versus the kind of questions that I think are not her business. Um, and sometimes questions can sort of fall in the middle and sometimes initial questions can be uh, clumsily worded or a little bit goofy or a little off base. And hopefully you'll be able to strike a balance between, you know, okay, this is new for her. She's thinking about this perhaps for the first time. She is not coming to this already super uh, aware of of what are the sort of etiquette rules here. But then also if she says, well, what does this mean about your twin? You know, I, I've noticed the following things about your change in appearance over the years. Here's my theory. Would you like to hear it? Um, having a, an exit strategy for shutting some of that down, I think will be good. Um, so the thing that you do have control over is you do not have to out your sibling. You don't have to answer any questions, no matter what your mom says, like, well, I've noticed such and such changes in your sibling this year, and the two of you look such and such a way together. That means the following. Can you confirm that? You just get to keep saying, I'm not going to talk about my twin. Um, we are not the same person in two bodies. We are two different people. Um, and if you want to talk to them about something, you'll need to go do that. And that's, I think, the most that you can hope for. Um and again, I, I, if, if I thought that by virtue of not coming out, you could protect your twin uh, from these questions, not that I would necessarily give you different advice, but I'd certainly I, – I just don't think that you can, really. I, I, I just don't think – even if you never told your mom, even if you told everybody else in your life and said, let's all keep this a secret from mom, I just don't think that that would spare your twin from – this pattern that your mom has with them. So if that feels helpful when you think about what's coming out going to do for me, um, you can kind of let yourself off the hook of what if I come out and it makes life harder for my twin? I just think that's all coming from your mother and there's nothing you can really do to stop it um, aside from not engaging with it. Um, 
You say also that you're not sure how to bring this up with your future in-laws. You know, I, I think that that's actually kind of a great way to start. I think you can just say like, hey, you know, I've recently made a change when it comes to my social media accounts. I know you guys aren't on social media, but a lot of my friends know this at this point, And that is that I go by either she or her. I'm sorry, either she or they. Um, and, you know, have a little bit of a primer about what that means for you. Um, and just let them know, like, there's not really great etiquette for this yet. I don't know the established forms, but I just wanted to tell you because this is something that's been important and meaningful for me, and I wanted to let you know about it. Um, and then same thing, uh, aside from your little spiel, it, you can let them have a little time to ask you a couple of questions um, and think about, you know, to what extent do you want to kind of walk them through what the process has been like? To what extent do you want to root um, explanations for why this has felt important in in your own experience versus just a real quick, hey, here's an update. Nothing super uh, important for you to do. Either she or they is fine. We're good here. Um, can certainly check in with your partner. But I think if your read is that your in-laws will take it reasonably well, they probably will. Um and it's, you know, it's always a little bit arbitrary to tell family members about changes in our lives. You could always put it off by a couple of days or do it a little bit sooner. So there's always, I think, going to be a sense of, do I do it now? How do I, do I just like stop the middle of like a barbecue and say, I have an announcement about how you may all address me. Um, it can feel, yeah, as I said, it can feel arbitrary and and a little odd, but that's part of just the process of letting your in-laws know stuff about you. Um, and good luck. And I hope that you and your twin are able to continue setting firm boundaries with your mom. I think the best way forward for you is just not feeling like it is your job to explain your mom to your twin or explain your twin to your mom. I think it can be hard when you feel like, oh, I have a slightly better relationship with mom, even though she hits me with some of this too. And I wish I could make it easier for my twin. But it's okay that your twin and your mom have some contentious areas of their relationship and you should let them hash that one out. And good luck. Um, again, I don't think you should hold off on this in the hopes that it would keep your twin safe from something. You get to come out when you feel ready and when it feels important to you. Um, and you've already started having this conversation with other people in your life. So it makes sense that you would like to start having it with your mom. And um, yeah. Yeah, I'm now flashing back to all of the various questions I have gotten in my life about, hey, your appearance looks different. Does it mean something? Um, and sometimes I have had lots of room and patience for answering that question. And sometimes I have felt like, no, 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 please do not ever mention the fact that I wear clothes or have a body ever again. Thank you so much. So I, 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 I feel some of your uncertainty here. Okay. Again, I have no one to bounce off of, so I'm just going to say for myself, now I'm ready to read the second letter. I hope you're having a great time listening to this. Subject, when to tell him. Dear Prudence, I've recently met a great, brilliant guy after a couple of years of singledom turned celibacy. I'm in my mid-20s. I don't know how to tell him about my history with sexual assault and legal issues. I was groomed by a pedophile who was 15 years my senior when I was 15, and I was with him until I was 19. Those two and a half years after I, quote, got legal were complete hell. I was raped, physically and emotionally abused, and because of my state's must-arrest domestic violence laws and my refusal at the time to get him in trouble by pressing charges, I was arrested twice for misdemeanor assault, which I didn't do for the record. Those charges were dismissed very soon after. 
although I've been successful both professionally and academically. With my arrest record, I'm in the lengthy and expensive process of having those arrests expunged, just to demonstrate how far I've come since then. I've also done a lot of work in therapy, and I'm really proud of the progress I've made. I've also used my experience to reach out as a volunteer and advocate for other domestic violence and sex abuse survivors. All that being said, I've never worried about someone's opinion of me and my background before like this. This isn't my first relationship since leaving my abuser, but I just have a good feeling about this guy. How do I bring it up with him and when? I don't want to blindside someone with a seemingly violent arrest record when the context and circumstances were anything but. Ugh, so... You know, first and foremost, letter writer, I just, this is so intense and so painful. And I'm so sorry um, that you have had to think about how do I talk about this with this new boyfriend of mine um, in such a way that doesn't feel overwhelming or, or terrifying or that invites questions about an incredibly traumatic and painful past that I've done a lot to try to, um, I don't want to say exactly put behind me, but to put in a place in my life where it's not driving my thoughts and feelings every day. I feel like um, there's a number of ways you could potentially go about this in terms of how much you want to share with him. You don't have to start by giving him the whole walkthrough. Um, if you wanted to let him know something like, hey, I just want to let you know um, when I was younger, I was in a really abusive relationship. Um, I'm not ready to share a lot of the details with you, but it's something that I want you to know about me. Um, it does inform both the way that I approach therapy today, and it's also the reason that I do so much advocacy work for other people who have experienced abuse um, and assault and rape. Um, that might feel like enough that you think, okay, he knows a really big part of my story. He's aware of it. Um, without feeling like now it's time to walk him through like the real nitty gritty of what that abuse looked like. Because I think that route will make you feel much, much more of a sense of relief because um, you won't feel like, oh, there's this big thing about me that he doesn't yet know. Um, but it also won't feel quite so um, uh, like the pressure is now on to explain this four-year period that was unbelievably painful for you and where you know, sort of draconian laws um, that were supposedly designed to protect victims of abuse were in fact often employed to make life for abuse victims more difficult. Um, and that's something that sadly happens all too often um, and, and is part of the reason why, you know, there's so much broken with the criminal justice system and, and the way that the state and the law responds to abuse. But again, um, you don't have to go into all that now. So so my advice would be first just to give him that one or two sentences so that he's aware. And then you don't mention whether or not you're still in therapy. It sounds like you sort of dip in and out periodically. Now might be a great time to set up a couple of appointments just over the next few weeks with your therapist so that you can kind of plan out um, how do I want to say this to him? What questions do I feel prepared to answer if he has any? Um, what questions do I not want to answer that would feel too intrusive or too personal or, or put me in just um, too much harm's way? Um, and then also to think, what do I want to look for in his response that would be a red flag for me? Um, I, I, I'm so glad you've met a fabulous guy and that you care about him so much. I hope that his response is fantastic, but I also want you to be able to think about in advance, what would I need from a partner 
in this. And if he did not have that, if he wasn't able to meet me there, um, if he responded with any sort of um, what 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 could he respond? How could he respond such that I would then think this is not the guy for me? Um, because I would just want you to go in feeling like it's not just about convincing him that I am a good and worthy victim and that he shouldn't um, hold this against me. It should also be um, I want to make sure that he has the kind of character I think that he does. So that I think will help a lot. Um, but yeah, as you prepare for this conversation, um, I, I think the way that you have described it to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the fact that the state that you were in meant somebody had to get arrested. You were a teenager and afraid and 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 trapped in a cycle of abuse. You declined to press charges against your abuser, so the state arrested you. Um, I, I don't think that's something you need to overly explain. Again, I think most reasonable people would see that and and be just implicitly on your side. Um, so please don't feel like you have to um, furnish him with explanation after explanation. I think it would just be helpful maybe even to write down like what are the outlines of this story? Um, I want to share it with him. I also want to share, you know, here's our, here's the ways that I've received help for this. Here's the ways in which um, I have been supported and assisted in my grief, in my anger, in my loss, um, in my growth, um, so that you can kind of know a little bit more about how that's shaped me as a person. And, and also to make it clear, I'm not asking you to fix this for me, um, but that the goal would be, I want to share a little bit about this with you so that you know me better because this is what's made me who I am um, and I really care about you. And and I think that that is just the best way to do it. Um, you know, I understand that you're worried about blindsiding him as if sort of like he, he should expect that I'm this very, like that my history should just be problem-free or not involve trauma or abuse and and I'm somehow, you know, the phrase blindsiding makes me picture a car accident, like some sort of idea of like he is being brought into a world of violence or abuse because of me. And I would just encourage you to whatever extent you can not to use language like that about yourself. Um, lots and lots of people have experienced complex and compounding forms of trauma. Um, lots of times people aren't ready to share that within the first couple of weeks or months of dating because that's what the first couple weeks and months of dating are for, um, for getting to know someone bit by bit. So I don't think of this as blindsiding. I think of this as a natural progression of emotional intimacy. So it's not that you're suddenly interrupting the process of emotional intimacy by bringing up something you sort of need to apologize for or feel a little guilty about introducing him to. This is the next phase of intimacy, and this is the story of your life. And the story of your life involves grooming, rape, abuse, state violence, um, therapy, escape, support, and advocacy. That's just a part of who you are. So... To whatever extent you can also bring that mindset into the conversation, I think you will feel better and like you are doing a good thing by getting to know someone more and not um, losing points or losing face um, by saying, actually, um, you thought you were getting one type of relationship, but I have some bad or complicating news about that. I think that is a really uh, heavy burden to place on yourself. Um, 
again, I, I think if you share with him what you shared with me, he's not going to think, wait a minute, this really seems like a, a violent person trying to justify or excuse violence. It's it's a pretty clear case of um, a, a child abuse victim um, who, who was further abused by the state um, and you know, the fact that the charges were dismissed, that you're in the process of having them expunged, um, that you've been an advocate, all of that will just, again, make the narrative really clear. So if, I, I hope this does not happen, but if his response is, I just don't know, this is too much for me, um, that is a good sign that he is not the right guy for you. I hope that's not his response, but I, I would just say, you know, figure out the timeline that feels neither rushed um, nor avoidant to you. Check in with a therapist, maybe also a couple of close friends, maybe somebody else who works in advocacy, um, and figure out both what you need from him and and also say, you know, during this conversation, I get that this is a lot. Um, if you would like a little time to decompress, maybe we can take a, take a break for a little while, meet back up and talk about it. Um, that's totally, totally fine to want him to have that because I'm sure – He's, he's thoughtful. He's great. He cares about you. He might want a little time to collect his thoughts or um, work through some of his his feelings. That would be perfectly, perfectly reasonable. But yeah, what you're, what you're thinking about doing is not blindsiding. So I think it's really just a question of when do I feel ready to start discussing it a little bit? And do I want to give him the broad outline or more detail? And if you start by giving him the broad outline, you didn't just set a timer where if within six months you haven't told him everything, you're now doing something wrong. Um, it's just a matter of deciding how much do you trust him? How ready do you feel? How prepared and supported do you feel on having this conversation? Um, and do you feel ready to know one another better? Um, but yeah, there's no yeah, – you could keep this one um, – to yourself as long as you feel like you need to is I think ultimately where I would come down on that. I do understand why it feels like because there's a public record, you would rather have, have the conversation um, with him rather than I don't think it's likely that he would find out otherwise, but I do understand um, why that might be on your mind. But again, there's just not like, boy, if you haven't said this by such and such a date, it officially becomes something bad that you did. It's just, that's just not how this kind of disclosure works. And good luck. I'm so glad that you're dating someone fabulous. And I hope that he continues to treat you wonderfully and just in general. Um, I'm really, really glad that you have all the support and the meaningful work in your life that you do. All right. I'm going to move ahead to something that's a little bit lighter. I need a little bit of lightness right now. And this letter has everything, including callbacks and cookie bouquets. And that makes me feel good because uh, I need that in my life right now. The subject is supportive, not stifling. Dear Prudence, my boyfriend and I are both involved in theater, although I've taken a step back from the hobby for the time being. Lately, he's auditioned for a few productions, and I've tried very hard to be supportive, but I've tended to go too far and inadvertently make him feel pressured. He went out for a dream role a few months ago, and even though he said he felt pretty confident, he was unsure if he was going to get cast. Genuinely believing that he must have been the most talented person in the room, I said things like, quote, you absolutely got the part, and, quote, they're stupid if they don't cast you. Well, they didn't cast him, and he viewed my would-be encouragements as a source of stress because he thought I was being blindly optimistic and not seeing the situation realistically. 
because his ex wasn't encouraging of his creative pursuits, I feel an obligation to go out of my way to show just how much I do believe in him, which is a lot, often more than he believes in himself. But I just seem to overdo it. He just got a call back for another show, and I'm already anxious about being appropriate. I'm sitting at work, browsing custom cookie bouquets to send to the cast on opening night, trying to find personalized gifts that reference the show to give him after each performance, penciling the performance dates into my calendar so I make sure I'm free for each show, and he hasn't even gone to the callback yet, much less been cast. I know that this stems from the insecurity I carry knowing that I'm far less talented than he is, and that I'm holding him back in his creative pursuits, which he insists isn't true, but is a fear that lingers. How can I relax and provide adequate yet appropriate support when he gets to do a show? At the rate I'm stressing now, I won't get a decent night of sleep between now and closing night, three months from now. This feels like a Stephen Sondheim show. I say that despite having seen very little Stephen Sondheim. Um, But it feels as dramatic and stressful as a big old play. First of all, I'm glad that you and your partner are both doing well otherwise. While this is a problem that absolutely brings up real fears about, you know, fixing other people and what am I worth in a relationship and you know, does someone want to be with me if I'm not constantly fixing their internal emotional problems? Um, this is a good problem to have rather than like, I, I have hope for you. I have a lot of hope. Um, where to begin? Where to begin? I think it's great that you've recently taken a step back from uh, theater. I think maybe it will free up some time to um, pursue less fraught interests, things that don't involve quite so much like performance and being rated and ranked and being publicly put on the spot. I don't know if this was bringing up some of those things for you, but it sounds like it might have just felt a little bit much. Although, actually, I also wonder, you say you stepped back, you say that you're not nearly as talented as him, you say that you kind of feel internal pressure to make sure that you're not just more supportive than his last ex, but you're so supportive that you fix his insecurities. So I would just like to float the idea uh, or ask the question, is it possible that part of the reason that you have stepped back from theater is because you want to make being your boyfriend's cheerleader your full-time job? And you feel like if you are also competing in that arena, if you ever do well and he doesn't, that that will be your fault and that he won't be able to be happy for you and that you will in fact be hurting him by doing something fun and that you enjoy. That's a possible read I get from this letter. Um, I, I think there, are, you know, you certainly don't have to do lots and lots of theater, but I would maybe investigate if part of the reason that you stepped back um, was because you have decided I need to make sure he feels good and supported and propped up at all times. I need to be the wind beneath his wings. Um, and that means I will be retiring from my own wings and going into full time, 100% wind production. Yeah. That would be a question that I think is important to ask yourself. And if that is true, at that point, I would sure encourage um, seeing a therapist, possibly dropping in on a CODA meeting, um, which is Codependence Anonymous. Um, Not everybody finds 12-step work um, useful, but I think it can be. And I think it's always worth trying out to see if you like it and if you get anything out of it. Maybe talking to some friends and asking for loving, compassionate, constructive feedback on, 
hey, have you ever known me in a relationship to work really, really hard to fix all of my partner's emotional problems, even when they don't necessarily ask me to? Because I'm starting to think that that might be something I struggle with, and I'm looking for ways to turn that ship around. Some of that is pretty, like, big picture, throw yourself into the self-help section of a bookstore, and I don't want to give you a ton of projects in terms of um, changing the way that you relate to being in a relationship. But I think it's worth thinking about. The other stuff about um, saying things like, you absolutely got the part, and they're stupid if they don't cast you. I, I think you see, I think the reason you included those direct quotes is because you realize, with the benefit of hindsight, um, that those were more than just supportive, that those were... Um, attempting to steamroll into the future that was an attempt to say it's gonna happen don't worry you don't have to live with insecurity for a second it will happen um and i think you know that that's not super helpful especially if things don't pan out so um i think that will be relatively easy to to tweak i think instead of saying things like you absolutely got the part and they're stupid if they don't cast you you can say things like you know depending on whether or not you were there, um, you can say things like, I thought you did fabulous. Or if you weren't there, you can just talk about like, generally speaking, did you feel like you did your best? If so, that's all you can do. I think you're incredibly talented. I'm hoping that they cast you. I'm rooting for the best. Do you want to go out and get cheese fries to take your mind off of it? Like, number of very supportive things you can say that do not um, revolve around. I promise you through sheer force of will, they will cast you. So, I would also just say, don't spend too much time worrying about what your boyfriend's ex did. It's great that you're so encouraging, but you don't have to retroactively make up for her lack of support by being 10 times more supportive. That relationship is in the past. If he feels like um, he brings some baggage or insecurities to your relationship now as a result, he can you know, let you know when he feels that getting activated. But I really don't think it's good for you to say, I have to keep the specter of his ex always at the forefront of my mind. Because if I stop being supportive for even a second, I will turn into her. It's just not useful for you. Um, you know, so I would say at this point too, the problem is how do you manage your anxiety? Because it's not that your boyfriend is saying like, man, if you don't get me cookie bouquets, I'm going to lose it. Or when I don't get cast, I freak out and I don't know how to handle it. It feels more like I have such anxiety about the idea of my partner experiencing even a moment of discomfort or disappointment that I have to throw myself into attempts to predict the future, control reality, you know, by the sheer force of optimism and love and buying cookie bouquets, I can make sure that he never, ever experiences a disappointment is, you know, I don't know where that comes from. I can relate to some of it. Um, I, yeah, just I think there's a part of you that says, I cannot allow myself to inhabit the possibility that my partner might be upset and I can't do anything about it. And then maybe ask some questions like, is that exhausting? Does that make me feel like my job is to produce a 24-7 carnival of delight for my partner. Um, what would happen if my partner was sad and I let that happen? Um, like if my partner was sad and disappointed and I was with them and I said, I love you, I'm sorry this is hard, but I didn't do anything else. What am I afraid would happen? Would it be that um, they wouldn't love me? Would it mean that they wouldn't need me? Would it mean that I had failed? Would it mean I'd have to sit with an uncomfortable feeling and just kind of let it pass? And I can't imagine myself doing that because I think uncomfortable feelings will kill me. I, I don't know what underlies that for you, but I think it's worth asking. Sometimes I think when we're acknowledging 
fearful cycles or compulsions for the first time, it can help to just write down a couple of times, what am I afraid of? And it might be that he won't get the part. And then underneath that, you know, like what fear underlies that fear? And that's like, uh, you know, then I'm afraid he'll be reminded of his ex. Uh, I'm afraid we'll drift apart. Uh, I'm afraid he'll take his loss out on me. Um, I'm afraid that he'll never be happy again. I'm afraid that I'm responsible for my partner's happiness. And if I can't make it happen, then I'm no good. I'm afraid that the only reason my partner's with me is my ability to produce um, happiness and affirmation and love on the spot. And if I'm not constantly doing that, why would they want to be with me? Again, I don't want to say that those are all the fears. They might be connected. They might not. But it's worth getting to the root of like, what am I afraid of will happen? Because you know, theater is about rejection. People don't make callbacks all the time. And it's important to cultivate a certain degree of resilience. Although, again, of course, it also makes sense to be sad and disappointed. But this level of like, I'm at work browsing for cookie bouquets, kind of losing my mind, trying to rearrange my whole life around my boyfriend's next play. Um, and I've already dropped out of doing plays myself just in case he needs me. That speaks to a real fear of if I don't fill my life um, with my boyfriend, I, I don't know what I'll fill it with. I'm afraid of that. So it's affect, you know, you're afraid it will affect your sleep. It's affecting your work a little bit. It sounds like it's affected your hobbies. I would say get thee to a therapist, talk about fear, insecurity, codependence, possibly drop in on a couple of codependency anonymous meetings, um, and and just really spend a little time on you. This is not going to be a problem that gets solved because you find the perfect way to be supportive about place. This is a problem that's going to get addressed um, when you start taking your own anxieties as seriously as you take your boyfriend's callbacks. Buy yourself a cookie bouquet. Cookies are great. Get you a cookie. You know, take a breather. Take a minute. You sound overwhelmed. And then, you know, look up some therapists. Final question. It's just good old-fashioned money. I can't handle any more of these uh, like deep, complex ideas about like, what's my worth? Do I have value? Am I a good person? Am I worthy of love? How do I deal with not getting what I want? I just want something super straightforward about like J.D. Wentworth. It's my money and I want it now. Um, so the subject is talking about money. Dear Prudence, as a teenager, I inherited some money from a grandparent and my parents have been looking after that money for me. However, I'm now in my mid-twenties, and I'd like to open a conversation with them about my inheritance, with a view towards taking control of it in the near future. I have pretty much no history of talking with my parents openly about money. I started earning my own as soon as possible as a teenager, and have kept my spending very separate from them to maintain my privacy and independence. Despite being pretty sensible, I think, in that area of my life, when my parents have brought up money in the past, the underlying assumption is usually that I'm a reckless spender, that my career goals are unrealistic, and that I don't understand the, quote, real world. I'm aware that my financial independence signifies their decreasing control over my life, so while I've often found comments that they make insulting and frustrating, I'm reasonably sympathetic. It must be really hard to let go of a child. That being said, I'd love to be able to just have a frank adult conversation about my plans without their suspicion, and if possible, without a subsequent onslaught of emotional messages about how distant our relationship has become, which they would of course see as a separate issue, but I'm pretty sure will be triggered by the request. This is made more complicated by the fact that I have moved abroad, and my eventual plan for the inheritance is to use it as a deposit for a house here. I can see how that might be pretty painful for them to hear. Hopefully it goes without saying, but I love them and I want to maintain a good relationship. I would just really like it to be adult and to have appropriate boundaries. Do you have any advice about approaching this conversation? 
Do I ever. I feel like I have some good news for you, which is that while I totally understand some of your goals uh, in terms of like how do you talk to your parents about money in the future, I think they're um, understandable, possibly even achievable. You don't need to worry about most of that. You don't have to convince your parents that it's time to give you your money. I don't know if this is the kind of inheritance that you legally had a right to it when you turned 18 um, or if it was held in trust for you until a certain age. But uh, if if you are of age and there's not any like special coda um, in this inheritance about what age you're allowed to take control of it, all you need to say is, hey, mom and dad, um, I'm ready to take over control of this inheritance Um you know, and then if there's a lawyer or a financial advisor you need to get in contact with, ask for their contact information and do it. Or if there's like an account number you need to know, just get that. Um, you don't need to say what it's for. You don't need to convince them that you spend money wisely. You are an adult and it is your money. I would say I'm like 15% nervous that your parents have spent it. Maybe 20%. I I don't think it's the only um, possibility here, but I am nervous um, that it sounds like you have a real history of um, becoming incredibly independent and responsible pretty early, and yet your parents keep telling this story of you're distant, you spend recklessly, and it sounds like they would love to use money to control you and feel frustrated that you usually don't need money from them. Um, it, it's certainly possible for them to want to use money to control you and also love you and also not have squandered your inheritance. But I do hear often from people whose parents squander their inheritances uh, from other people. And um, the fact that they did not just say, by the way, here's the age at which this trust or this inheritance or whatever um, is turned over to you makes me nervous. So um, I think, you, you know, It's great if you want to talk to your parents about the deposit someday. It's great if you want to talk to them about, um, you know, uh, I don't want to talk about money and our closeness. I think those are two separate things. None of Like, don't try to have any of those before you take over your inheritance. Just say, it's time. And if they fight you on it or if they say, no, we need to talk about these other things first, at that point, your next step is not – try to convince them to see things from your point of view. But your next step is to contact a lawyer. Um, this is, again, there's no like bank or, or, or trust in the world that's going to say like, oh, well, you know, if you're of age, but your parents don't think you're financially responsible enough, we're not going to turn it over to you. That's like, if this money is legally yours, it is legally yours. Um, and it would be unbelievably unreasonable of your parents to withhold you money that is yours um, because they don't like the way that you have spent your own money. You are an adult. Um, It's your money. You know, just I'm going to play the J.D. Wentworth commercial. It's your money. You want it now. Um, So you are, I think, overthinking this one. I think you also seem like you have historically bent over backwards to um, sympathize with your parents where sympathy is not always the appropriate response. And I'm not saying this because I think, hey, your parents are actually manipulative monsters and they suck and you should never talk to them again. I understand that families can be complicated. Parents can both love us and have their own baggage and sometimes express that love in controlling or slightly manipulative ways doesn't turn them all into monsters. I do get that. Um, But I think there's a reason that you started making your own money as soon as you could and that you have now moved across the world. And that reason is your parents um, have a hard time 
treating you as an adult for no other reason than the fact that they would like to be able to tell you what to do. So, you know, when you say, like, I'm reasonably sympathetic, it must be really hard to let go of a child. Not this hard. I got to tell you, I don't think it's actually super normal for otherwise healthy, loving families to find it impossible to acknowledge that their children in their mid-20s who've been making money and supporting themselves for at least 10 years um, to be able to let that one go. That's actually, I think... um, I think that's an issue that your parents have, and I don't think it's reasonable or normal or understandable that they are upset and frustrated and constantly making little digs about your financial independence. I think that's actually um, – that's their own baggage. So I, I can't promise you that there's a way not to get the emotional messages. I can't promise you that if you then consulted a lawyer that they wouldn't you know, kind of freak out and say, like, I can't believe our child would do this. This is devastating. How sharper than a serpent's tooth. Um, but I think the important thing right now is to get the money. Um, and it's not rude to get it. Um, and if they don't hand it over pretty immediately when you say, I'm ready for it, then the answer is not to give in to their unreasonable demands and have long and involved conversations about how you're actually reckless and you don't actually support yourself and you should actually be guided by them as if you were a child. Um, That would be a real step backwards for you, and I don't want that for you. So if you get pushback from them, again, while remaining loving uh, and kind and calm, um, you go ahead and you do what you need to do to get the money. Um, and that would mean next step, talking to a lawyer and preparing for if your parents spent it, thinking about how do I want to handle that? How would I want to mourn that loss? How do I want to acknowledge the betrayal and the grief that I might feel? You know, I can certainly understand why you would not necessarily want to um, try to pursue your legal options at that point, but you should at least find out what they are and figure out, you know, how will this affect the way that I relate to my parents? Does this mean I want to limit my contact with them even more? I think that would be really reasonable. Um, I hope they didn't. I hope they have just been, you know, kind of jerks in keeping it from you because they've decided this is the one thing that we can hold over your head. Um, I think odds are good they have not spent it. I would love to hear back and, and find out, you know, how how far over their heads you had to go to get your money. But yeah, you can't make them be adult about this, I'm afraid. It seems like uh, whether or not they are capable of behaving like adults remains to be seen. I hope they can turn around. If they do, it's not going to be because you were super calm and talked them through every single step of the way and always, always agreed on their terms of like, yep, let's dive into whether or not I'm too independent or I'm a reckless spender or whether I have realistic career goals in order to get money that my grandparents left to me. You just got to, all you got to say is, we can talk about this another time right now. I just need you to hand over the details of the account. That is it. That's all we need to do. That's my only advice for approaching that conversation. And I really hope the money is there when you look. Please, please, please let us know. And I hope you enjoy living abroad. I hope you buy a house there. I hope you're able to have periodic, meaningful conversations with your parents, but not always give in to their demands or agree to their terms of what's reasonable or appropriate for parents of adult self-sufficient children to do. Um, You could bend over a lot less backwards for them, I think, and that would be more than okay, more than okay. And that is it. I'm done. I finished it by myself and I'm so lonely and I'm going to go outside into the great wide world and just fill, fill my heart with joy again. See you next week. 
thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our wonderful producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, instead of just one additional segment for Slate Plus, we now have a mini episode that drops on Fridays. Here's a preview. I'm sorry that there have been a lot of women more interested in uh, a, a sort of situation where they thought you were cheating on your fiance. That is too bad. Those don't sound like women who would um, materially improve your life if you spent a lot of time with them. But that doesn't mean like, what do I do differently to make sure lots of women do want to sleep with me in my open relationship? Many won't. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.